0: When we speak of arguments for the existence of God, if we're speaking in the context of apologetics rather than just philosophy, our fundamental goal is not simply to know or to prove, but to lead people to the truth. So there's a subjective or personal dimension to apologetic arguments, as well as an objective and logical dimension. Neither of those two dimensions can ever be dropped if we're really going to do apologetics. If you drop the subjective dimension, you do only philosophy, which is a noble thing, but a different thing. And if you drop the uh, objective dimension, you do simply psychology or worse, dishonest psychology or manipulation. Because it is so powerful in this subjective dimension, I think the argument from desire is the single most effective of all the arguments for the existence of God not in the sense that more people recognize it and more people would say this is the argument that convinced me the most, but in the sense that they're moved the deepest and the farthest by it. If you were to give a cross-section of a 1,000 people, a simple, clear, and intelligible explanation of the 20 most popular arguments for the existence of God, I think the majority would pick out something else, probably the moral argument, or maybe the argument from design, or maybe even the first cause argument, as the one that appeals to their mind the most strongly. But I think this is the one that converts people the most deeply. Each argument for the existence of God has the same conclusion. So they're differentiated by their premises, each has a different premise. We can classify them into three groups depending on where we get our premises from. It seems to me one of these groups is intrinsically invalid and the other two uh, can be valid. The group of premises that are invalid are usually called ontological arguments. They're arguments from the very concept of God, they're purely abstract logical arguments. The most famous one is Anselm's version, God is defined as that then which nothing greater can be conceived, but a God that exists outside the mind is greater than a God that is that exists only inside the mind, therefore if the God outside the mind does not exist, this God is not God, which is a self-contradiction, because God is defined as the greatest that can be conceived, therefore God exists. I only met one person who claims to be utterly convinced by that argument. He's an extremely intelligent person and a famous philosopher, but I never met any ordinary people who are. And most people think that that kind of argument doesn't really convince because it doesn't have data. It doesn't start with something, so how can it get to something? It just starts with a thought, so it ends with a thought. And I think the correct conclusion of the ontological argument is not that God exists, but rather that the concept of God, in order to be logical, must be the concept of a God that really exists, rather than the concept of a God that doesn't. But that doesn't prove that he does. The two sources of premises for valid arguments for the existence of God are the external or outer or objective pole of our experience, and the subjective or personal or internal pole of our experience. The outer arguments are often called cosmological arguments, arguments from the cosmos. For instance, the argument from design in nature to a designer. Uh, Or the argument from causality. Effects require adequate causes. A big bang requires a very big banger. But it's the last category of arguments, the inner arguments, the arguments whose premises are taken from the very human self or the nature of the human self, that are the most fascinating, partly because they're the most mysterious. The human heart is much more mysterious than the cosmos. Partly because they're close to home, and we naturally have more of a vested interest in ourselves than in galaxies. And partly because we have inside information here. We know more. We don't know what it is to be a galaxy or a tree, but we know what it is to be a human being. An example of an inner argument that's not the argument from desire is Augustine's argument from truth. He points out that the human mind, changing and fallible as it is, can and does know unchangeable and infallible truth. Nobody doubts that two and two are and must always be four. How do we know that? Where do we know that? Is it it in my changing mind that I know that? Is it in your changing mind that I know that? Is it in the changing world that I know that? No. Well, if that's objectively true, there must be something beyond human minds and the world. There must be something like a mind of God. Whether that argument is valid or not is not my point. It's just the kind of argument it is and why it's so fascinating. Now, inner arguments from the human soul come from something distinctively human human souls do things that animal souls and plant souls do too even plant souls or lives if you want to use the modern word soul is sometimes used today only for human soul but the old-fashioned word is any life force plants animals or humans uh human souls make the body grow once you're dead and the soul is not in the body the body doesn't grow anymore uh Human souls also make the body sense and feel pleasure and pain like animals. Once the soul's out of the body and the body's dead, it can't do that. And I don't think we have more than one soul. So not every power of the human soul is a distinctively human power. But insofar as we are made in God's image, we can do at least three things that God can do and nothing else in the universe can do. We can know the truth, we can love the good, and we can enjoy beauty. There's no evidence that even the highest animals can do that. There's a kind of a prophet and a king and a priest in our soul, intellect, will, and imagination. Augustine's argument is an example of an argument from the nature of the human intellect. Arguments about the human imagination and beauty are much trickier. My favorite one is a very short one. There is the music of Bach, therefore there must be a god. You either see that or you don't. But it's the third category of arguments, arguments from the will and good, that I think are the most fascinating. And there's two main ones. One is about the will's connection with morality, and the other is about the will's connection with happiness. The moral argument is that There is this thing called moral experience or obligation or conscience, that's data. If there is no God, how do you explain that data? The two versions of that are the old-fashioned version, which starts with proving the existence of a real objective moral law, as C.S. Lewis starts near Christianity, and then saying there must be a lawgiver behind the law. The modern version, which is more effective with people that don't believe in an objective morality is Newman's argument from conscience. Nobody admires somebody who violates their own conscience, who's deliberately dishonest and hypocritical. Uh, Why? Why does conscience have absolute authority unless it's the prophet of an absolute God? Those are the two main forms, I think, of the moral argument. The argument from desire is the other kind of argument from the will and its desire for goodness, namely a psychological argument. And the end here is not so much morality as happiness. Those two things, by the way, have been pretty clearly and sharply distinguished in modern thought and not in ancient thought. And I'm not too sure that this is a useful distinction, rather like Descartes' distinction between spirit and matter. It's a valid distinction, but the temptation is almost unovercomable to commit the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. To take these two abstractions and to think that they are two separate things, I think can't play it into that and so did utilitarianism. Utilitarianism talks only about happiness and ignores duty. Kant talks only about duty and ignores happiness. I think both are unhealthy. Utilitarianism much more unhealthy than Kant. The argument from desire is about our search for happiness. The one thing that everybody agrees on is that they want to be happy. Uh, Even a suicide wants to be happy. If he was happy, he wouldn't commit suicide. Now, the best version of the argument from desire I've ever seen is C.S. Lewis's. If Lewis goes down in history as a contributor to philosophical apologetics, this will be his main claim to fame. There are passages in other writers, notably Augustine, that may be profounder and more moving, but there is nobody who has specialized in this argument more and has said more about it and has used it more effectively, than I know of, than Lewis. The argument is very simple. It has two premises and one conclusion. The major premise, the universal principle, is every single human desire corresponds to some objective reality that can satisfy the desire. If there is hunger, there is food. If there is thirst, there is drink. If there is loneliness, there is society. If there is sexual desire, there is sex. If there is curiosity, there is knowledge. If there is the love of beauty, there is beauty specify a little more exactly, however, not all human desires correspond to real objects. Only innate and natural human desires. Uh, there is a desire on the part of many little boys to fly through the sky like Superman. There is no Superman. Here is a desire that doesn't correspond to a real object. But that's not an innate desire. It's conditioned from comic books. And to show that it's not innate, all you have to do is uh, ask if it's universal. Anything that's innate to human nature is found wherever human nature is found, in any time, place, and culture. Everyone admits that the desire for happiness is innate. And everyone knows that the desire for Superman is not. And very seldom is there a borderline case where you're not sure whether a certain desire is innate and therefore universal, or only conditioned and therefore not universal. So we're talking now only about innate and therefore universal desires, desires that come from human nature itself. Every innate desire corresponds to some real object. We always assume that. We would be exceedingly surprised to find any counterexample. We never have found any counterexample. I suppose we could imagine it. It's not just unimaginably self-contradictory like two and two making five. But suppose you took a rocket ship and you found a race of beings on some other planet that had no stomachs and couldn't digest any food but they kept getting hungry. That would make no sense. Or suppose you found the ants on some other planet but there were only male ants and no ant wives, but there never were any ant wives. They didn't lose them, they didn't die, they don't exist. So you have here a planet full of Romeo ants longing for Juliet ants, which never existed and never will exist. You can't even write a decent science fiction story about that. It doesn't make sense. All right, so every innate desire corresponds to some real object premise two among our innate desires there's one that stands out from all the others and is radically different from every other not by degree but in kind Lewis calls it Sehnsucht in his autobiography surprised by joy he uses the word joy for this desire That's tricky technical language. Joy usually means the satisfaction of a desire. In fact, an unusually deep desire. He uses the term in a technical sense to mean the desire itself, which is a little misleading and often misunderstood. The German word for it is Sehnsucht, deep mysterious longing. There are two characteristics of Sehnsucht that distinguish it from all other desires. By the way, all this analysis is strictly non-religious. That is, totally independent of any religious assumptions, any divine revelation, or any religious faith whatsoever. For apologetics to work, you have to start where the unbeliever starts. So all this is checkable by your own ordinary human experience. Characteristic number one, this desire has never been satisfied. You want a kind of happiness that's deeper than you ever had, truer than you ever had, more beautiful than you ever had, more ecstatic than you ever had, a happiness that will never get boring. Nobody can imagine that. Unless you're a mystic, I don't even think you can imagine heaven that way. Take a piece of paper, put a vertical line down the middle, And write on the left-hand side all the things that you want to exist in heaven, and on the right-hand side all the things that you don't want to exist in heaven. And now wipe out the right-hand side and think about the stuff on the left-hand side and imagine that you're in this heaven of yours forever. How long would it take you to get bored? Uh, It's very strange that we don't know what it is that we want. Well, then why do we think there is anything that we want? Because we want it. Why do we think we want it? Because we're unhappy. Oh, you say that's only because we're, we're poor or stupid or oppressed. No, it's precisely when we're rich and smart and free that we feel this desire the most. It's precisely those peak experiences, those highest moments in your life that you feel most clearly and poignantly the desire for something more. This lover's quarrel with the world. This happens not among the poor, but among the rich. Not among the uneducated, but among the educated. Not among the insensitive, but among the sensitive. When you see the most remarkable natural beauty or, or find the most complete human love or reconciliation, it's then when it looks most like a pointing finger, a prophet, an icon from heaven, a, a suggestion that there's something more. The, the perfume that you thought was its own end When you get close to it, it seems like the perfume from a beautiful woman who's unattainable, a goddess. Maybe it's much clearer if you put it negatively. Nothing in this world is totally satisfactory. We are discontent the more self-aware we are. Pigs are content. Insofar as we transcend pigs, we are discontent. So the greatest of us who appreciate the great things in this world the most are the most discontent. Why? If we had it all, why are we discontent? Well, we don't know. We want something that we can't define and we can't attain. And we can't even imagine attaining in this life. That's very strange. Second characteristic when we feel this deep longing it is painful in fact in some sense more painful than anything else yet it is pleasurable in fact we often prefer the pleasure of this pain to any other pleasure this hunger is better than any other satisfaction you see this pretty clearly in the romantic poets especially Wordsworth he's maybe fooling himself about it but He does express very poignantly this longing for his lost youth of soul. Oh, to feel as I did then. The great longings appeared in me like beautiful waves on a a stormy sea. And now everything is calm and dull. So this longing itself, like a prophet, seems to have come from a higher realm and is more desirable than any other satisfaction. So if... You don't have it for a long time, you want it, and then you desire the desire. The conclusion, if you put these two premises together, is that that which corresponds to this desire, that which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man, yet is desired by the heart of man, must exist. And that's a negative definition of God that which transcends anything imaginable or conceivable in the realm of goodness, that which could satisfy the demands and desires for joy, deep happiness, without boredom, without imperfection, forever. Lewis, I said, uh, has the best texts on this. Let me give you five if you want to do some more reading. The clearest thing, is the preface to Pilgrim's Regress, which is his earliest full-length published book, where he especially explains those two features more clearly than I have. The second is his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, a great book in itself, a sort of a 20th century Confessions of St. Augustine, although that's putting it into too high and palmy company. I said there were five, I've got six. The third one is the heaven chapter in the problem of pain, which is the best six pages about heaven that I have ever heard from anybody who hasn't had a mystical experience. The best philosopher or theologian I know in the world to talk about heaven, with the possible exception of some passages in Augustine. But I plead with you to read at least three or four times that chapter on heaven. The fourth is the sermon, The Weight of Glory, which is, I guarantee, uh, two things. One, the first time you read it, you'll be intrigued and puzzled. And number two, even the first time you read it, the ending of it will move you deeply and it will be unforgettable. Five, in Mere Christianity, the chapter on hope, And finally, Lewis's best book, I think, profoundest and best written, his novel, Till We Have Faces. The whole story, but explicitly about a quarter of the way through, just before Psyche's death or marriage or sacrifice, whichever it is. I deliberately left myself obscure so I don't spoil the plot if you've never read it before. How good is this argument? What are its pluses and what are its minuses? Let me give you three pluses and two minuses. Plus number one. In many minds, it opens up a real possibility that's never been opened up before. It's not automatic. Some just don't see it, some just aren't moved by it. But many people are moved by this argument that are not by move, moved by any other. I remember teaching it once many years ago at Berklee College of Music, which is in downtown Boston, and they had to take philosophy. They didn't want to take philosophy. They were all wanted to be professional musicians. Half of them were on pot or drunk. They weren't at all interested in philosophy. They were kind of interested in religion, so we talked about the existence of God, and I got mild interest until I came up with this argument, and everybody was absolutely fascinated. They'd never heard anything like this before and they buzzed around it and told their friends and they kept asking questions in the next classes about it. It's, it's a different kind of argument. It'll, it'll hit people with a, a surprise that it's not what they expect. A second good use is it connects the deep self with the deep universe. The human self, or psyche, or spirit, or mind, or consciousness on the one hand, the subjective pole, has been so alienated from the universe, which has been reduced to matter uh, in a Cartesian way, that anything that heals that gap and connects us with the universe, makes us feel more natural at home, or better yet, makes the universe look more human, is a healing thing. Well, here we have a maximal achievement of that end, because we're looking at the deepest of all human desires, not just something peripheral, and we're looking at the deepest thing in objective reality, namely God, the very creator of the universe. And of those two things can be connected, even by an argument that's obscure and maybe not logically perfect. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. You don't know at first. But that connection uh, can also be a, a wonderfully healing thing. Finally, it's a practical argument that leads naturally into action. Most arguments aren't that. There is a first cause. How interesting. Next time I listen to a lecture on science, I might bring God into it, who knows. But this is something like Pascal's wager. It changes or can change your life. It's the invitation to a leap of faith. There are two main objections to the argument. It has two premises. Each of the two premises can be questioned. The first premise is every innate desire corresponds to a real object. Well, you can simply question that desire, uh, that premise. John Beverslice, in a book called C.S. Lewis and the Search for Rational Religion, by far, by far, the worst book ever written about C.S. Lewis in the entire history of the world, Uh, Not because it attacks Lewis. There have been some well-written books that attack Lewis. But because Beversley's, I don't think, is quite honest. He's an atheist who's pretending to be a Christian. But he gives a philosophical argument against the major premise. He says, the major premise says all innate arguments correspond to a reality. The conclusion is that the argument for God corresponds to a reality. How could we possibly know the premise unless we first knew the conclusion? So the argument begs the question. If the conclusion were false, namely the argument for God doesn't correspond to God, then the major premise would be false. Not every argument, not every innate desire would correspond to a reality. In other words, the major premise is not analytic, but synthetic. It's not self-evident, It has to be shown through empirical research and inductive generalization. But inductive generalization is never certain. Just because all the other arguments, uh, excuse me, all the other desires correspond to realities, doesn't mean this one does too. If you go into a restaurant and you find that every single meat dish is served with the same gravy, and there's 50 meat dishes and you've observed 49 of them, are you certain that the 50th will have the same gravy? No, you're not. It's only probable. Well, that argument sounds good, but it's, in fact, not only a bad argument, but elementary. Someone with just one semester of philosophy can refute it. It assumes that there's no such thing as a valid deductive argument at all. It assumes that there's no such thing as abstracting a universal principle from instances of it, but only generalization. Let me give an example. All men are mortal is a universal principle. You have experienced the death of a number of human beings. How do you know all men are mortal? Only because you have experienced a dozen deaths? Is that proof? Is that adequate proof? Not at all. Oh, well, then it's only probable that all men are mortal. It's not analytic. It's not like two and two are four. So maybe it's not true that all men are mortal. So maybe you'll never die. So you're uncertain as to whether you're going to die or not, right? Of course not. You're quite certain that all men are mortal. How do you know that? Because you can abstract to a universal. You can understand something about human nature. Human nature is a thing that unites soul and body. And soul is personality and consciousness, and body is, well, body. And the body is like an animal body, and an animal body is an organism. And an organism has organs, and organs all have to work together. And if they don't, it's going to die, so you're going to die. We all know that. The objection assumes a kind of materialism. That material observation is the only thing we can be certain of, that the mind doesn't have the power to grasp universal principles, but it does. The second objection is more serious and more difficult to answer. Sure, every desire corresponds to something real, but do we have that desire? Many people will say, I don't find anything like that in me. What do you do then? Can you prove it? No, you can't. The weakness of this argument is like the weakness of love, it depends on something free. It depends on an appeal. There's an argument from love that's something like this. If you've ever truly loved someone in an unselfish way, then your heart has developed an eye that perceives the intrinsic value of the beloved. Most of the time people are just objects of use or respect or admiration. Uh, They give us pleasure and their absence would give us pain, but we're not outraged by their death because it doesn't affect us that deeply and we take death for granted but when somebody very close to us dies we're outraged and we have a, a often an argument with god god how could you do this well it's just like everybody else yeah but it looks different why because your identity is so invested in that person that it's as if god killed you not them So, if you have that agape love, and if that eye in the heart awakes, then you perceive the intrinsic value of the beloved. And then you can use that premise as an argument for immortality. Uh, the kind of thing that a human being is isn't the kind of thing that could conceivably be just treated like dirty diapers. Now that's a very weak argument, logically. If you don't experience that deep premise through deep love, you're not gonna be moved by that argument at all. But if you do, you are. Well, I think the argument from desire is something like that. Anyone who has experienced Sehnsucht, even if they don't believe in God, uh, are gonna be deeply moved by this argument. But those who haven't, won't. Well, what do you do with those who haven't? Simply invite them to explore their own soul. And say the greatest poets, atheist as well as theist, have often said, This is in me. So if you are interested in knowing yourself, maybe you should go a little deeper down into yourself and honestly look and see if that's there. <coughs> Finally, if it isn't God that's behind the fact that every desire corresponds to an object, if it's just that every other desire corresponds to an object, but God's desire for God doesn't. If every other hunger can be satisfied, but this one can't because there is no God, then although this argument, if, if that's true, then this argument doesn't prove God, but it proves the devil. Because for every single desire that's subjective and spiritual to correspond to an objective reality in the universe, That can't happen by chance, that's design. That's an astonishing coincidence. And design requires a designer. Now, if there's no God, then the designer is wicked and malicious because everything else is a bait and no fish. Everything else is an appetizer and no meal. If there's no God, then the argument from desire proves that the universe is like this. I will now tell a very unfunny, but philosophically instructive joke. A father was telling his five-year-old son that uh, there are certain lessons in life that you have to learn. Uh, Son, what are you the most afraid of? Oh, daddy, I'm afraid of high places. Thank you for being honest with me, son. Now, you're gonna have to do something. See that five-foot high wall? Yeah, that's scary. You have to go up on that wall and jump into my arms. Oh, daddy, I'm scared. Well, I promise that I'll catch you. You have to learn to trust your father. Okay, daddy, do I have to do it? I have to do it. Promise you'll catch me? Yeah. Cross your heart and hope to die? Yeah, okay, here I come. Oh, thank you for catching me, daddy. Can we go home now? No, one more time. See that wall? Oh, it's high. It's 10 feet high. Oh, daddy, I can't do that. Yes, you can. Go up on the wall and jump into my arms. I promise you, I will catch you. Promise? Okay, here I come. Oh, thank you for catching me, Daddy. Let's go home now. One more time. 20-foot high wall. <gasps> Daddy, it's terrifying. Oh, I'm so scared. I know. That's why you have to do it. You promise you'll catch me? I promise. You swear? I swear. Okay, here I come. Whee! Splat. Ah! Daddy, why didn't you catch me? To teach you life's most important lesson, kid. Never trust anybody, not even your father. <laughs> That's what life is like if there's no God, because we jump from the other walls, and we get the stuff, and we get caught. And then the big jump at death, and there's no everlasting arms. Well, that's a very clever universe, so I would have to give the devil great credit for inventing that kind of sadistic uh, bait trap. In any case, it's more than chance. And if your prospective convert then says, ah, yes, but you haven't proved God. You've proved either God or the devil. The response is, okay, if neither one is provable or disprovable, then why bet on the devil rather than God? What do you get out of it? Use Pascal's wager. God is just as intelligible, as intelligible a hypothesis as the devil for this argument. So you would embrace the devil just to avoid God? What are you, nuts? And that will get them thinking along the lines of Pascal's wager. Now, that's the basic outline of the argument, and fortunately, I did it in just about a half hour, which gives you an equal amount of time for questioning and discussing. Over there, yeah. Could you elaborate on the nature of the desire that corresponds to God? Could I elaborate on the nature of this desire that corresponds to God? Well. What should I add? A third point besides the two that I made, or to explain one of the two, or both, or just vague description, or point out more details in C.S. Lewis? What would you like? More like this is an existential argument. I'm trying to think of what kind of experience, or what kind of, what makes you recognize as desire, or how does it distinguish from other Okay. Uh, it's not really an existential argument or an existential desire in the ordinary sense of existential that is (sighs) something special something spectacular something from a cliffhanging experience something that only some people have something obviously passionate i think it's much more common than that i think it's just when we're the happiest we realize that there's got to be something more just a reflection on any experience that we ever had that made us the most deeply happy. Maybe you could do it by analogy. If you can take, let's say, five experiences that you remember. One, the most deeply happy. Two, almost as deeply happy, quite deeply happy. Three, just happy. Four, moderately happy. Five, just barely happy. Uh, You classify them in terms of the depth of their satisfaction. Uh, And then ask, was there any dissatisfaction or unhappiness or desire for something more? And you probably will get two different kinds of answers to that question. Uh, At the bottom, when you had just some mild satisfaction, let's say uh, oh, a good sandwich when you were very hungry, you really wanted some dessert, but of the same kind as the sandwich. Or if you were quite poor and you suddenly won $10,000 in the lottery, you said, oh, that's great, that's number three. That's right up there. You would, you would have liked another 10,000, maybe only another 5,000, that would have been enough to pay off the mortgage. Uh, but it's the same sort of thing again. But as you get up the scale to four and five, it's more mysterious. What in the world do I want? Uh, one morning, let me just, just describe something rather unmystical. Uh, when I was in college uh, at Calvin, one of the things we did in the middle of winter to try to see the Northern Lights was to go out and sleep on the shores of Lake Michigan in sleeping bags. Uh, and we did it one night and didn't expect anything. The next morning, I woke up suddenly uh, and the sun was just rising. At the same time, the vestiges of northern lights were still in the sky, and there was a brightly lit cloud that looked like a sort of a cloudy thunderbolt, and along that cloud, a white gull was flying right to me. My first thought is, "Uh uh-oh, I died in the night, and I didn't know it. I really thought I was in heaven. Uh, I was surprised by the, the the. striking beauty of the scene, the amazing beauty of the scene. And then as soon as I realized, well, this isn't heaven, I said, wow, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in the sky. Wish I had a camera. Oh, what a stupid thing. I've got a camera. It's the eye and the memory. Far better than any other camera. Thank you, God. Uh, But then I thought, okay, the sky has opened up just a little bit, and heaven's going to be much more like that than it is like an ordinary nice day. My immediate thought was, there's got to be something more. Or take another example, you've always been looking for the ideal place to live, the ideal setting, the ideal landscape, the ideal natural beauty, Uh, and you, you suddenly surprisingly come upon a place that you didn't expect that's more beautiful than any place you've ever seen before. Maybe you can't live there, maybe you can, but this is a surprisingly beautiful thing. And what you think is not just, well, maybe over the next hill there's one with bigger trees or greener grass, but rather the the joy that I feel. Looking at this is different than the joy that I would feel in possessing and living in the next best thing. To possess it, yeah, that's satisfying. But just to see that it's there, even though I can't possess it, it's a different kind of satisfaction. Like that star that Sam saw in in Mordor. I don't know if that helps at all, but uh, there are many different kinds of examples of, of what distinguishes this desire for we know not what from all other desires that we can imagine or we've had in the past or we can use. Uh, One more thing, this is a desire not to possess but to be possessed. This is like the desire to enter a great city on your knees rather than to bring a great city to its knees. Different kinds of arguments. arguments uh, external and internal. But I my context of this question is I'm reading Jill Song's book on Aquinas's philosophy. He makes this distinction between ontological versus existential arguments, and the ontological arguments would be along these lines it seems to me they're they uh, arguments of degree of time, like no. Or versus this and with C.S. Lewis and Augustine? Plato's arguments are ontological because they're arguments from Platonic forms, from ideas. But both Aquinas' cosmological arguments and Lewis's and Augustine's and Newman's experiential arguments are what Gilson would call existential because they start with something that exists not just essences, not just ideas, not just potentialities, but actual things. So, just like Plinus says that every effect has some essence of its yep. cause, that's the same thing here. Yep. That's, that's a good way to put the argument. Let's use the principle of causality. Not only physical events, but psychic events have causes. What could be the adequate cause of this psychic event, this desire? That's something of a weak way to look at it, though, because that's a little bit like Descartes' argument from the presence of the perfect idea of God in an imperfect mind. Uh, Descartes uses the ontological argument first, and that's no good, but then he uses an existential argument. I, Descartes, experience the event in time of the idea of a perfect God appearing in my mind. So that's, a, that's an event in the mind, just as a storm is an event in the universe. Events need causes. What is the adequate cause of that idea? Could it be something, something or event which is less perfect than that idea? Well, no. Can't get more out of less. Therefore, there must be a God. That strikes most people as weak. How do you know somebody won't come up with some idea that explains this, like Freud's explanation of the religious idea? So, to say the argument is causal and no cause other than God explains the data of Sehnsucht is to assume that we won't find some clever Freudian psychologist tomorrow who won't explain Sehnsucht without God in some clever way. And we don't know that for sure. It's probable but it's not certain. Yeah. I have a two-part question. Uh, I don't know how to defend this objection, but how would you respond to someone who says that God can be described as an unnatural desire? The second part is, how would you respond to those who say that uh, the argument you raised can be explained uh, just by saying that humans are chemical beings, Try, try to object to your argument by saying, we the word just uh, the puppets of our chemistry or chemistry can account for desire? things like that that... Well, there's confusion in both objections. First, God is not a desire. God is a thing desired. God is an object of desire, either real or imaginary. Uh, The desire for God is natural in the sense that it flows from human nature. It's not artificial. Uh, The word natural has a lot of different opposites. One of them is artificial. Superman is an artificial desire. God is a natural desire. Even, even atheists like Freud admit that the desire for God is a natural desire. Because Freud says, all of us fear death. All of us like very much two things. Number one, to have the riddles of life explained to us. That gives us intellectual comfort. And to hope that people will take care of us and free us of our responsibilities and pains. That takes care of physical fears. And daddy does both. But at a certain time you realize daddy's gonna die. And there's gonna be a universe without daddy and therefore without these two things that we naturally desire. So what do we do? We invent a cosmic daddy, an invisible daddy in the sky who is immortal and will always know us and love us and take care of us even though our physical daddy doesn't. That's a very clever explanation for the idea of God. And it's natural. It comes from the infant's natural terror at being alone. So the natural desire for a supernatural object is still a natural desire. So I wouldn't say this is an unnatural desire or an unnatural object, but it's a natural desire for a supernatural object. And I think that takes care of the objection, unless maybe even with those clarifications, the objector would then reformulate the objection. The second one is just the old objection of materialism. If ideas are nothing but products of chemical forces, then no ideas have that quality called truth. Because there's no correlation between truth and mass, or truth and weight, or truth and kinetic energy, or truth and density. I can't say that uh, three atoms are true and two are false. I can't say that uh, an idea that flows uh, along the nerve endings at a certain speed is true, and uh, when the nerve endings slow down, I've got falsehood. What true means is the correspondence between an idea and the fact that it refers to. But that can't be another, simply another physical fact. When I say, my four cylinder car has three cylinders working and one cylinder not working, that idea is true because the car has four cylinders and three are working and one isn't. But if the brain is only like a car and its stuff is like cylinders, then one cylinder is true about another cylinder, which doesn't make sense. That just dissolves an idea into a material thing. Ideas about material things can't be material things because material things aren't about anything. Furthermore, if it is true that there is nothing but matter, then all ideas are produced in exactly the same way as hallucinations or drunkenness or uh, the pain that I cause you to think when I hit your head. So why should I believe one set of ideas rather than another? Including the set of ideas that is called materialism. According to materialism, everything is made of matter, and therefore there is no such thing as an ism, including materialism. So it contradicts itself. Yeah. How do you go about cutting off the proposition that uh, this need, this, this uh, need for something supernatural, is but an extrapolation, an extrapolation from, uh, from nature? That we, we may have some, some sort of need, but we choose to, to hypothesize as to something that, that goes beyond it, that meets it in a greater way than nature. I don't think there is a way of being absolutely certain that that's not so. Uh, that's a reasonable objection. We don't know how clever and self-deceptive the unconscious is, so maybe we're so hardwired that we desire one thing that doesn't exist. And we can point to other examples of fantasies that come from our needs and desires. We live in unreality in a lot of ways. We can, however, look by analogy and see whether this desire corresponds to these other fantasy desires in most ways. Most other fantasy desires, like I'm never gonna die, I don't have to be afraid of that, or someday I'll win at the lottery, so I'll keep playing and losing my money because I know that I'll win even though the odds are ridiculous. We live in unreality in in, in thousands of ways, all of us do. Uh, If we look at other features of those fantasies, we will find indeed that they come from our nature and that our nature is not wholly to be trusted. We fool ourselves. So in that sense, that casts suspicion on the God idea. Maybe that's also fooling ourselves. But then we look at the results, the consequences of living according to these fantasy desires and we see that they're always unhappy. And then we look at the results of living according to the God idea and we see it's exactly the opposite. It's happiness, it's psychic integration. Even if it's false, it's a different kind of falsity than these other things. It's not self-destructive and self-corrective, like drunkenness or gambling or any of these livings and denials. So that at least shows that that it functions differently. It doesn't absolutely prove it, but it at least casts some light. Hey, how come that door looks a little different than these doors? Even though you don't see what's behind any of them. This one lets light come through, and that one takes darkness. Would it be possible, perhaps, to sort of cross-section this with a moral argument, saying that that we have we have need for some more objectivity and some some relational element, and these these things they might be logically deniable, but metaphysically and existentially we can't deny them. In fact, except for Augustine who is by far the most modern of the ancients or medievals. Uh, I don't think any of the pre-modern thinkers distinguished sharply the moral argument from the argument from desire. They were a part of each other because they talked about the supreme good. They talked about morality as something inherently desirable. We tend to think of morality as something necessary and needed but not desirable. We tend to be Puritans. Morality is a set of rules which we, darn it, have to obey for our own good, yeah, but it's no fun. The ancients thought morality was fun. They thought virtue automatically granted happiness. So the argument from moral virtue and the argument from happiness were two sides of the same argument for them, which I think is a lot healthier. Because it's true. You meet a saint and you, you find a big smile. Yeah. Basically, this desire that we're talking about, um, not only is it not met in practice, but it can't be met in theory, because it seems to be defined as that which can't be met. No, it's not defined as that which cannot be met or satisfied. It's defined as that which we don't know how it could be met. Uh, we might in this world find something that satisfies it. And God could do that. He could enter this world in such a way that he would give us not only his own real presence as he does in Christ, but also the beatific vision. And maybe he did that to some of the saints and mystics. So I don't think we know enough to be able to specify that we can define that this can't be satisfied. We don't know. It's the ignorance that makes it so useful. It's, it's a kind of agnostic argument. If you can argue from ignorance, that's much more convincing than arguing from knowledge. Because you can't refute ignorance. You can only refute supposed knowledge, which is why the most effective argument against abortion to a hard pro-choicer is uh, nobody knows when human life begins. Okay, then don't shoot. Precisely because we don't know. Uh, how dare you take the chance? Aren't you really acting as if you know for sure and we don't? So you're the dogmatists, we're the skeptics. Yeah. I've got a pretty clear and guaranteed satisfying answer for you. Uh, Anybody know exactly where that passage is? Let's look at the context. Philippians Philippians 4, good. Let's see what he's talking about. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Uh, He's talking about earthly things, in fact, physical things, riches and poverty, having food and not having food. About such things we are to be content, but about righteousness we are not to be content. Christ says exactly the opposite. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, who are discontent. So pretty clear distinction there. And that thirst after righteousness is one of the things that gives us the greatest joy in this life. There's an example of Sehnsucht. It's the discontent that makes us deeply happy. I suspect that even in heaven, since God is infinite and we are finite, our hunger and thirst for more of God and more of his righteousness will be one of the things that makes us infinitely contenter and contenter with our discontent in heaven forever. Output transcript Out, for like But could it, could that both of those sides be maybe some of those items be uh, two sides of the same coin? Because you said, well, about boredom. Uh, how long would it take me to get bored if I crossed over I suppose I have, uh, I will not get bored. Besides, so I could go on. Well, obviously, you don't want heaven to be boring. So, Non-boredom is on the heavenly side. But what is it, what objective reality is gonna make you not bored? I mean, all the good things in this life, steak and football and whatnot, that eventually becomes boring. Well, the obvious answer is God. But God can't be defined. Oh, yeah. See, heaven is obviously relative to God. Heaven doesn't contain God, God contains heaven. We know what will make us bored, we don't know what will not make us bored. However, we have, I think, six hints. In this life, there are six things which we have all experienced something of, which are boring only because they're mixed. If they were pure, I think they wouldn't be boring. Knowing ourselves, loving ourselves, knowing our neighbor, loving our neighbor, knowing God and loving God. Because here are the two God-like activities, knowing and loving. And here are the two images of God, yourself and your neighbor, and the model. So if you really love somebody, you're always fascinated with them. You want to know more and more about them, whether it's you or your neighbor or God. Time's up. Time's up? Well, someday God will say that, so you better be ready. (laughs)